all month we've heard about correction and the chastening hand of God. And man, we've heard from every different angle about the chastening of God, whether it's against us or how God chastens others or, you know, in the home with, with children and, and uh, correction and training. Uh, we've gotten every single way we could possibly talk about correction and chastening. We've heard it. And I didn't really know which way I was going to go, but the Lord said, why don't you talk about correction without compromise? And you know, I'll tell you what I mean by all that, but um, I just hope it's a blessing to you. Um, up on the board there, it says, on the, on the screen there, it says, Revelation 3.19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You know, Jesus is talking to one of the churches there in Revelation, one of the seven churches, the church at Laodicea. And he didn't have a very good report about them. And uh, he said, you're lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not cold. And uh, he said, you're blind. And, and uh, you think you're rich and you have all that you need. And uh, he gave a pretty scathing report about who they were and what they were doing and that he wasn't even a part of their lives. And he said, you know what? As many as I love, I rebuke, he said at the end of that, at the end of that report on the church. And you know what? I said, you know, thank God that he loves me. Thank God that he loves me so much that he's going to rebuke and chasten this church so that they come back. We ought to rejoice in that, that God loves us that much, that he would correct us and chasten us. Jesus is saying to the church there, turn around, turn around. I love you too much to let you continue to go on in your sin or go the wrong way. He will rebuke and chasten. Now, if God loves you as a child, as His child, He will correct you. That's a good thing. We know that He loves us. Godly, His godly love prompts that correction. And it should do the same in us. Proverbs chapter 3, you're in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 says, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. And then our memory verse, For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son, in whom he delighteth. Look, my whole message, if you fall asleep after the next few minutes, my whole message is that God doesn't let his children continue to go down the wrong way. And neither should we. That's the whole message. God's love prompts his chastening hand. And His correction in our lives. Thank God for that. And we should do the same with our children and with each other. The preacher gets up. Pastor will reprove and rebuke and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. And as has been already said, two-thirds of that ministry is reproving and rebuking how much he would love to more exhort and encourage. But we're told to preach the Word of God. And it seems to knock us around and slap us upside the head sometimes because we're away from God. I wish we were all walking with God every day, but we're not. Christians are to admonish each other, to warn each other, and to help restore each other. That's part of our ministry is being a Christian. And parents are to correct and to train their children. What does it mean to correct? It means to help an individual see the wrong and help set them on the right course. It's as simple as that. According to what? According to truth. To try to help somebody that's going the wrong way, go the right way. To admonish them. To help set the right course in their life. So what do I mean by correction without compromise? It's not holding back that corrective action. 
Because many times we do, with each other and with our children. We refuse to correct, chasten, or admonish our brothers and sisters in the Lord. But to correct, correction without compromise is not holding back the corrective action. We are to train our children. You know, I'm not equivocating our children as, uh, as the Irish guide dogs. Know that right up front. I'm not doing that. But they train these dogs, and these, I watch these dogs, and they do exactly as they're told. They are useless without the trainer, without being taught what to do. But being taught what to do, and then being obedient to the master, at some point they'll be able to help a blind person across the street. Now, they're still a dog. They do the same thing with horses. They train horses. You cannot throw a saddle on a wild horse's back. You'll never get on a wild horse till they get broken. Now, how do we bring that over to our children? You don't want to take the spirit of the horse away, but you do want to break its will. You want the horse to listen to you and to obey you. The same thing with our children. You don't want to take the spirit of being a child out of them, but you do want them to listen to you. They have to learn the authority in the home. They have to have their will broken so that they do your will. And when they do your will, hopefully they'll be doing God's will. They have got to learn authority. That won't happen if you hold back the correction and the chastening hand in your home if you don't do that. We fail with our children. Because when they are born, they are born with a bent away from God. Don't think for one minute, these little kids that are running around in here, they are precious. And they are born in innocence, but they are born with a sin nature. And they are bent away from God. It's like a sapling put in the ground and it's bent away from God. It's, what I'm saying is it's bent over and you put a wire on it and you try to pull it back and it keeps growing away from standing up straight. So you put a wire on it and you pull it back and you're trying to get it to grow straight. That's our children. They always want to go away from God in authority. That's in them. That's that sin nature. They have to be trained. Don't fail them. Don't fail them by not uh, correcting them when it's needed. We see what happens when correction and chastening are not carried out. We know what happens. Just take a good look at the world around you. The family breakdown. There's a breakdown in the family. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 30. This is the world around us. This is the world around us. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 11. There is a generation that curseth their father and doth not bless their mother. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. There is a generation... Oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are as swords, and their jaw teeth as knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, the needy from among men. That's not a very pleasant picture. Greedy, cruel, oppressive children, unthankful children, prideful children. That's a whole generation. It's not to be the norm in the, in the Christian home, though. But I'll tell you what, we're only a generation away from that. We're just a generation. Lost and rebellious children will bring up more lost and rebellious children. We're only one generation away from that. And we see it today in the world. We're lost. Sometimes they do a better job of raising their kids than we do. 
That shouldn't be. We don't want to lose our children, and we don't want to lose each other. So I'm not only talking about the family, I'm talking about brothers and sisters in the Lord, looking out for each other. Proverbs 22.15 says, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. Foolishness is bound in that little child, in that little baby. It's there. You know what foolishness is? It's a life without God. Anybody who says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So your children, our children, are born without God, really. They're born away from God. And that's that foolishness that's in them to live without God. And we have to train them, you will live with God. You will learn authority. And I will train you to know your Creator, God Almighty. Foolishness is bound in our little children's hearts. But the rod of correction shall drive it far from them. You know what we do? We compromise. I don't want to get ahead of myself. To chasten. This is God's rod of correction. And it can happen by trial, troubles, affliction. In some way, He may bring that in and allow that into our lives because He's chastening us. But He does it in love. He does it because He loves us. All month we've heard that. It's been an encouragement to know that my God loves me that much. I feel like I've been really loved, you know, because of the chastening sometimes you find in your life. But I know He's there. I know He loves me. And He loves you too. Spare the rod, hateth the child. That's the Bible. If you spare the rod, if you want to withhold correction of your children, then you are showing a hatred towards your child. Instead of God says to love them and correct them and chasten when necessary. Love is the motivation, by the way. Not anger. God is not punishing us for our sins. Thankfully, Jesus has already suffered that for us. He's not punishing me for my sins. I've received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. He died on that cross and He suffered for all my sins. And if you're here this morning without Christ, you're going to suffer for your sins because the wages of sin is death. You will spend an eternity in hell. But Jesus already suffered and died for your sins. So He's not chastening me for that reason. He's doing it because He loves me. He's doing it for my welfare, for my benefit. We ought to do the same. Our children, the correction and chastening can be despised. Back in Proverbs chapter 3, did you see there in verse 11? Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 11. God tells, tells Solomon to write, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. Why? Because nobody likes to be chastened. Nobody likes to be corrected. It hurts. But he says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. He, he tells his son not to despise the chastening, but God's still going to chasten. It's for us not to despise it. Because God is not going to hold back because we despise it. Do you understand what I'm saying? We do the opposite. We hold back sometimes because we know that little Johnny's not going to like this when I chasten him. So we hold back. I want my little child to love me and like me. God says, I love you too much not to chasten and correct you. So Solomon tells his son, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. He's doing it because He loves you. No one likes it. So what do we do? We compromise. We don't want to hurt their feelings. 
We don't want to hurt their self-esteem. Maybe they'll cry. Spare not for their crying, the Bible tells us. And we don't like to be surprised. We don't want to see our kids, I hate you. You're going to hate me a lot more in a few minutes. But we don't do it then. We hold back. We don't like to be despised. We want to be liked. We want to be their best friends. No. You are not your child's best friend. You are his parent. Act like one. Carry out the correction that's needed. You're trying to make them live for God. You're trying to raise them up. Not be their best friend. You'll hear, I never do it again. I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. And I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. After about a hundred times, doesn't that get old? I'll never do it again. They're playing us like a fiddle. And what do we do? We compromise. Well, he just said he'd never do it again. So apparently they're never going to do it again. So I won't correct them. That's hogwash. They need to learn authority. So what do we do? We are inconsistent when we correct our children. One minute we're going to do it, the next minute we're not. I'll never do it again. And we, and we hold back and we don't correct them. So we've now compromised. And now who's in control? They are. The child's now in control. We've compromised. They have learned nothing about authority. They've learned nothing about God's love. Nothing. Follow through. Be consistent. Let them know. When God says He's going to do something, He's going to do it. Because mommy and daddy say they're going to do something, they're going to do it. What about our friends? Our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We see a problem and and we could be a help to them. But we fear. We fear offending them. And we compromise. We are so afraid of offending each other. Look, none of us are immune to that either. In certain situations, the heat gets turned up and we know we have to say something to help somebody. And it's hard. The flesh says, do not get yourself involved in this situation. But there's times that we should. We're afraid to ruffle someone's feathers. We're afraid of offending them. We're more afraid of offending ourselves. We're afraid of what someone might think of us. If we actually tell them, look, I love you. You're going the wrong way. I want to help you. And you take the Bible and show them. It's simply easier to let things slide than to ruffle any feathers. And that is against the Scriptures. And that's why so many of us sometimes think we can just continue on in our sin. Nobody has slapped us in the face. Now, you may get it on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week you're doing whatever you want to do. And some of our friends see it, and they don't say a word about it. Don't you just go on doing what you're doing? That's a shame. Now, our children, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Just turn to the right one book. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Verse 11. It says, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. You know, a slap on the wrist just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. They don't see any consequence for sin. So, when you make a determination that something has to be done, you need to do something about it. Otherwise, the little child, his heart is set to continue to do those bad things. You need to correct now, I guess is what I'm saying. 
We need to do it now. We need to stop bad behavior in its tracks because the truth here is that if a sentence isn't carried out speedily, the child's heart or other people's hearts or whoever you're dealing with, their heart is just going to continue to do evil. Because that's the that's our bent in life. That's our flesh. Don't encourage more wrongdoing by our compromise. When it means the sentence there, it's talking about the judgment. When you make a judgment with your children or with a, with a friend that you see going the wrong way, when you finally make a determination, then you're using the Bible, you've come up with a Bible truth, then you need to go for, forward with it. Because otherwise, if you don't pass the sentence, if you don't do it, if you don't execute it speedily, then people just continue on in their sin. And the children just continue on in the way that they want to live and do the things that they want to do. It's a spiritual law. I mean, just like gravity and centrifugal force or physical laws, this is a spiritual law. We cannot compromise our correction because it only promotes more bad behavior. So don't let our children believe that there are no consequences for sin. There are. They have to see that because the sentence should be carried out speedily. If you say you're going to do something, carry it through, do it, the child has learned that there's consequences for sin and their behavior. Proverbs 3.12, For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. It is not okay to withhold correction. Proverbs 13.24, He that spareth his rod hateth the son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes, which means early. Proverbs 29.15, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. A child left to himself, no correction. The loving use of the rod reproof when needed gives understanding of right and wrong. That's the wisdom it gives. When you correct your child, when you chasten them, and if you have to take the rod and and you have to let them know who's boss, that is telling them that there's consequences for sin. It's giving them wisdom. If I do this, I'm in trouble with mom and dad. I've done something wrong. And these are the consequences that I'm going to suffer. After a while, it sinks in. I'm not going to do that. You don't want your children lying, stealing, and cursing. But if you withhold correction, if you never let them know there's a consequence for acting like that and living like that and talking like that, guess what they're going to do? Lie, steal, and curse and cheat. That's what they're going to do. To avoid the consequences of wrong choices and bad decisions, we have to set boundaries. We set them in our own lives, don't we? We should set them in the children's lives. There should be boundaries. Boundaries are a good thing. How many have been to the Cliffs of Moher? I would say many of us, yeah, have to have been to the Cliffs. And you know when you go there, you can there's paths to walk on. And, and then you can go up to this one place there, observatory, where you can look back on the, on the Cliffs there. And there's a wall there. There's something to keep you from falling over the cliff. Now, people go around the wall, don't they? And, and I did. I, <laughs> I was one of them. <laughs> I had a moment in the flesh there, and I went around the wall. But I stayed back. I have no fear of heights. I don't know, is it 500 feet or whatever those cliffs are? I don't have a fear of heights, but I have a fear of falling. <laughs> and especially that sudden stop at the end, Leo. So... I stayed back. But I saw people sitting on the edge, dangling their feet. 
And I saw people go down to the next level. It was like two foot down. There was a little plateau. A woman was down sitting on that. I thought, you've got to be out of your mind. <laughs> One mistake and you're gone. That's why they want you behind the fence. By the way, there's a plaque there that says all the people that have either taken their lives or fallen by going around barriers. Like I said, I don't have a fear of heights, but I have a fear of falling and dying. <laughs> so I stayed back from the edge of the cliff because there's no, there's no boundary there. The boundary was in my head. <laughs> don't do that. So there's nothing to matter with boundaries. And our children, stay in the back garden. We put fences up. Stay in the back garden. There are walls in zoos. Although I find a lot of people now love to go over the barriers in the zoo and play around with the apes or the lions or the leopards. They have no boundaries. They've, they've actually climbed over a boundary because they have no boundaries in their heart or in their head. They must be out of their minds. These are wild animals. But there's a, there's a wall between the lions and the lambs. You don't want them nasty lambs getting in there with the lions and hurting them, you know? It's the same thing that we do with our children. We provide verbal boundaries and physical boundaries. No. Don't do that. Stop. Listen. All those different things. They should listen to that. That should be enough of a boundary. Stop. Don't touch that. You shouldn't have to raise your voice. You shouldn't have to go crazy in the store there trying to yell at your children. They should stop immediately. These boundaries should be enough to keep our children safe. That's what we're trying to do, aren't we? Is to keep them safe. Let me show you something in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now I know this is the Lord's Supper here that Paul's talking about, but in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31, it says, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened to the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. There's a reason. We don't want to eat the, body, the, the, uh, the bread or the juice, drink the juice unworthily. So we, we judge ourselves. We take a good look into our hearts and find out, is there something I need to confess to God? I don't want to be judged, or I want to be—I want to judge myself, not have the Lord judge me and be condemned with the world. We do that to so take a good look inside of us to see if there's any wrongdoing, any sin that we need to confess. We need to—we need to correct our children for the same reason. We're doing it for the same reason that we should not be condemned with the world, that they should not be condemned with the world, that we don't allow them to go down the road that they're going. If we're going to do it for ourselves before we partake of the Lord's table, because we know it's right to be right with God, then why wouldn't we do the same thing with our children? That they would not be condemned with the world and go down that path. You know, they do grow up. And what, what looks cute when they're little gets real irritating when they're 13 years old. And what could be in their heart that is not taken care of as a small child when they get old enough, they don't learn how to steal a car or take something from the shop or go into someone's house and steal something. The only thing stopping them is physical growth. But the sin is still there. And the bent away from God is still there. And we should correct them out of love. 
We are not exercising love if we withhold proper correction in any wrongdoing. Because we don't want them to be condemned with the world. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. To me, that almost sounds like a promise. God's saying, train them up. If you're not lazy and selfish, and you do train up your children and take the time to do it, when they're old, they won't depart from what you've told them and the, and the course that you've put them on. There may be some hiccups along the way. For the most part, those children will come back to God. I can just say we're not doing them any favors by withholding correction. Normally we're doing it because we don't want to have to do it. The complete show of love by a parent is not just the nurturing part. It's the admonition part. It's the warning part. It's the, it's the correction part. It's the discipline. It's the teaching to keep them safe. Hebrews 12.10 But He for our profit that we might be partakers of His holiness. Hey, when God chastens, it's for our benefit. It's for my gain. It's to help me live like Jesus. It's to help me partake of His holiness, His holy life. All we do is benefit from God's chastening and correcting hand in our life because that's who God is. And that's the Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. I just want to run through these and just maybe get out some truths here that you can... You can write them down or mark them down in your brain or write them in your Bible. But, you know, when I look at Eli was the high priest there. You remember young Samuel is about to be called in the early chapters of, of uh, Samuel. Called as a young boy to serve uh, Eli, the high priest. Well, Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And look there, it says um, in verse, uh, what do I want to say? Verse 12. In verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. So they were wicked. These two sons were priests, but they were wicked. And they didn't know God. Now Eli's the high priest. But he has two wicked sons. So it doesn't matter who you are. If you don't train up your children in the way they should go, they can turn out wicked. So apparently it took one generation. We're considering Eli to be a good man. He's got two wicked sons. Something happened. And it can happen in our families the same way. Look at verse 17. In verse 17 it says, Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great. was very great before the Lord. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. It says that these young men abhorred or they hated the offering of the Lord. They wanted to be able to take whatever they wanted of the sacrifice. They didn't just want what the flesh hook brought out. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. They didn't like God's way of doing things. And they were spoiled brats. And if they didn't get what they wanted, they were going to take it by force. And they caused a lot of other people to abhor the sacrifice and the offering of the Lord. They were nothing but spoiled brats and bullies. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel, and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Eli knew what was going on. Eli knew what was going on with his children. You know, I know what was going on with my children. I knew if they were outside playing, you know, you mentioned this a couple weeks ago, you can tell 
As a father, you can hear the voices of your children. You know what's going on out there. There may be five, six, ten kids out there playing basketball in that little courtyard there, but I heard Paul and Danny's voice out there. And if they said, Daddy, and yelled, I would have heard them. I would have responded. There was a lot of other cries going on out there, but they weren't as concerning to me. The cry of my son, that brought me to, hey, what's going on? Why is he calling my name? Eli knew what was going on. Eli was aware of what his children were doing. And he didn't do anything about it. Verse 23 says this, And he said unto them, Why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil doings, uh, your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. Why do you such things? Stop that. Don't do that. It's the same as sometimes with our children. It, it wasn't enough. He didn't restrain his children. Why do you steal, Johnny? Why do you keep doing that? Stop that. That's what Eli was doing. Why do you do these things? What am I hearing? This is not a good report. You shouldn't do that. Then restrain them. Keep them from doing that. Eli, he rebuked his sons, but he failed to restrain them. Over and over again, he failed his sons. As far as I'm concerned, he failed them. He indulged them. He had to for years before for them to get to this position. And now he's suffering the consequences, and so are they. In fact, Eli, as far as I'm concerned, broke the law. Because the law said, if you have a rebellious son, bring him to the elders of the city, and if he's a wine-bibber or gluttonous, and, and if he's a rebellious son, then he gets stoned to death if mommy and daddy bring him. By the way, there is a mother here. I don't know where she's at, but bringeth his mother to shame. So Eli let this go on and let it go on, and it just gets worse and worse and worse because he indulged his children. And he, didn't, he failed to restrain them. In verse 29 it says this of chapter 2, Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me, this is God talking, to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. You see, God's not number one in their lives. God's not number one in this. He's not getting the preeminence. And he tells us that Eli honored his sons above God. By not doing what he should have done. By not restraining them. By the way, God is to be first in our homes. As he should be first in this church. He has the preeminence here. Not anyone else. God is first. Well, God is to be first in our homes. He should have the preeminence. Not the children. There's too many child-centered homes. Where everything revolves around the children. Everything should revolve around God. What does God think about this? How is God honored in these situations? God needed the preeminence. In verse 30, in verse 30 it says this, Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, Be it far from me. For them that honor me I will honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So we can see that withholding correction is dishonoring to God. Restraint, not restraining our children is dishonoring to God. We may not see it that way, but God does. Because in verse 34 it says this, 
And this shall be a sign unto thee that shall come upon thy two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. I don't think Eli wanted to hear that, but that's what was going to happen. They were going to die. They were going to suffer the consequence of their sin. It tells us the end is coming for Eli's two sons. The failure to carry out uh, the, the correction results in greater consequences all the time. The farther along you go, than we even think is going to happen. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3, just over the page there. 1 Samuel chapter 3 and in verse 11 says this, And the Lord said to Samuel, this young boy is called of God, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel, at which both the, the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning this house. When I begin, I will also make an end. So he tells us that Samuel is called, even as this young boy, and he receives from the Lord the prophecy of the destruction of Eli's house. It's sad, really. It's very sad that all that's going to take place because of two rebellious sons and a dad that dishonors God by not restraining them. Very sad. And verse 13 tells us why. For I have told him I will judge his house for, forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. He just didn't do what he was supposed to do. He didn't act like a dad to his two sons. Now we all fall short of doing what's right all the time. We all do. And thank God for his grace in those situations. But Eli knew and he failed these two boys all the way through their lives. But I'm not saying that they didn't have their own will. And they didn't go their own way. But a lot of it was from dad not restraining his two boys. Eli failed. And whatever he may have done, it was short of what God said he should have done. Got to go all the way. You got to go all the way. Proverbs 3.12 would tell us that he didn't love them. That he didn't delight in them as a father delights in his child. He compromised. He compromised. 1 Samuel chapter 4 verse 11 says this. 1 Samuel 4.11 And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. That's the end of it all. Tragic. A whole family is destroyed. Remember, mom, there is a mother here. We don't read about her, but now her two boys are gone. It's tragic because of two unrestrained rebels. They're just left to do whatever they want. He knew what was going on, but he failed to restrain them. Verse 17 says, And the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there hath also been a great slaughter among the people, and thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken. The messenger is talking to Eli here. Verse 18, And it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God, that he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck brake, and he died. For he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing good here. It all just ends tragically. It's amazing how he fell off his little chair that he sat there by the temple when he heard that the ark of God was taken. It's just funny the way it's worded. He didn't fall off the, the ta- fall off his chair when he heard his sons were were killed. He fell off when he heard the ark was taken. I mean, not only has his son's been killed, but Israel's been taken captive by the Philistines and they've lost the battle. Thousands are killed and the ark is now gone. An old man dies. 
with the news of his two sons that have been t- killed and the ark now taken. And in verse 21, it says that um, Eli's daughter-in-law, and she named the child Ichabod. She had a child. And she named the child Ichabod. The glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father and because of her father-in-law and her husband. She knew who the culprits were. And it was called Ichabod. The glory of God has departed from Israel. Why? Because of some unrestrained rebels. Hebrews 12.10 says, For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. God chastens us for our benefit, that we might be a participant in his holiness and live a holy life. We don't want to compromise correcting and chastening our children. Don't compromise. Sorry, I didn't show you that one. I want to talk about our friends. Turn to Proverbs chapter 27. Proverbs 27. You know, it's not just our children. It's our dealings with each other. In Proverbs chapter 27, in verse 5 and 6, I'm sure you've read these verses before. Proverbs 27, verse 5 says, Open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So why do we counsel? Why do we give open rebuke? Because we love our friends. Open rebuke is better than secret love. Because we love them. We're doing it for their sake. We're doing it to correct them. We're doing it to bring them back from the wrong way that they're going. This isn't popular by any means. And it's not practice. You can look in your own life and see how many people have ever tried to help you by maybe pulling up alongside of you, unless you've lived a perfect life, and said, you know, brother, I noticed this is going on in your life. You need some help? Can I pray with you? Or have you ever done it to someone else? It just isn't practice. Now, I'll get to something I want to say in a minute. But the rebuke and the corrective action shows that you love that friend. It shows that you care about them. It shows that there's true concern for them, not what they think of you. And that's why it's not done, because we're more concerned about what someone thinks of us than what we think of them and trying to help them. And that's why it's not practiced. We don't like to wound anybody. We don't want to hurt anybody, especially someone we love. But the, the alternative is condemnation with the world, that they will suffer the condemnation with the world if they continue down that path. As I said, a loving or an uncompromising friend cares more for you than what you may think of them. That's why faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Whatever reason, they're not not—they're just rubbing your back and telling you everything's going to be okay when it's not going to be okay. When they won't tell you the truth. When they won't help you out of a situation. It's because they're more concerned about what you think about them if they were to bring up that hurtful thing in your life. And try to help you get back on the right course. Now look, turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 48. Jeremiah 48 and verse 10. I'm not going to get into all the actual truth. I'd like to just make an application. All the truth about this verse and where Israel is and Judah in this whole thing, and I think it's about Moab. But, Jeremiah 48 and verse 10 says, Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord deceitfully. 
and cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. And I'm just saying it's part of our ministry and our responsibility as a Christian that sometimes we have to take this book, which is our sword of the Spirit, and and when you see somebody that's going down the wrong path and you want to help them, that sometimes the sword's going to go in and it's going to draw some blood. It's going to hurt. It doesn't mean you walk around. I'm not talking about going around all of this judging and slaying and we'd all be dead. I'm talking about if I see somebody that's mired in sin or going the wrong way, and I love that. I love that person. They're my friend in the Lord. They're a born-again Christian. I want to help them. And sometimes this is what does the cutting. Not my words. I'm speaking the truth in love. But if I lay a truth on him and he doesn't like it, it's, this is drawing blood. If I hold it back, then I'm being deceitful. I'm being one of those friends that cares more about what he thinks about me than what I think about him. Are you getting any of this or am I saying it all backwards? I don't think we practice this enough. Like I say, I'm not saying go around now and be a fruit inspector and look at everybody and go, I am going to do some slaying this week. Andrew, you're in trouble. You know, we're just not, that's not what I'm saying. But you know there's been times when you have not said, I want to pray with you. I've seen that there's a problem. You're suffering. It just seems like you're, you're going down the wrong path. Can I help you? If I'm wrong, tell me. I've just been praying. I mean, we've we got to be right with God ourselves if we're going to go and, and help somebody else. If a man be overtaken of fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one. Turn to Ezekiel 33, and I'll, and I'll say something else about this. Ezekiel chapter 33, and in verse 7. Ezekiel chapter 33, and in verse 7. Ezekiel 33, verse 7, So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Therefore, O son of man, speak unto the house of Israel. Thus ye speak, saying, It is our transgression and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them. How should we then live? I guess what I'm saying is, if we're, gonna, if we're told in the Scriptures to go out and talk to people we've never met before, and may never see again, and knock on their door and interrupt their life to tell them that they're going to hell without Christ, why can't I tell a friend in the Lord that you're going down the wrong path? Why, is it, why shouldn't I be just as responsible to help a brother in the Lord than I would to knock on somebody's house who I, frankly, the flesh is just like, why am I, what am I doing here? Let me go home. Why am I out here knocking on doors? I'm here because God said, you're a watchman. Go tell these people about Jesus Christ. So if he's told me to do that, he's also told me to pull up alongside of a friend and warn them when they're going down the wrong path. We should have the same concern for our fellow brothers and sisters that we do for a lost world out there, I guess is what I'm saying. It's part of our ministry to admonish each other. Where's the iron in the church? If you pull up alongside of me, you should feel a little spirituality if I'm walking with God. And if I pull up alongside of you, I should feel a little spirituality and be sharpened a little bit by 
by your life. Where's the iron in the church? I don't know. I'm just trying to get across to you that I don't think we do this enough. We avoid confrontation with each other. We'd rather let somebody just go down the path they're going and say, hey, brother, you need to, can I pray with you? You're struggling right now. I'd like to help you. If a, man over, if a brother of a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Proverbs 25.11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Fitly spoken. The right word at the right time with the right spirit can bring someone back from who knows. Who knows where they're going to wind up. We only choose our sin. We don't choose the circumstances. Can you imagine the right word said at the right time to help somebody? Stop them dead in their tracks and turn them around and bring them back. So is a wise reprover on an an obedient ear. It's a tongue twister. I'm just talking about counsel, encouraging godly counsel to turn people around. Now, when we do, what do we do when a brother or sister is going down the wrong road? Try to help them. That should be natural for us to help each other along the way. And it's our responsibility to give good, godly counsel, loving counsel. God is the one that changes the heart. I can't turn you around. I'm just there to to warn you, to admonish you, to help you back on the right path. God is the one that's going to take the Word of God and convict you in your heart to turn you around or to turn me around. That's not my job to turn you around. It's my job to warn you, admonish you, because I care about you. I love you. We can't change the heart. That's God's work. We can only warn and speak the truth in love. I give you Galatians 6.1. That means taking the sword of the Spirit and drawing some blood sometimes. It hurts sometimes. But if it's done in love, I guarantee you, people will take it a whole lot differently if you're speaking the truth in love. They can tell if you love them. Your children know if you love them when you put the boundaries in their life. They know that you love them. They don't want to be let go. Do whatever you want. Go out in the middle of the street. I don't care. Where's the love in that? No, you set some boundaries in their life. The wounds of a faithful, loving friend are better than the deceitful kisses of the enemy. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll be done here in a few minutes. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And in verse 14, these are just, these are just the Bible verses for you to, to know that I'm not off the wall here. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14, And if any man obey not the word, our word, by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him. This is a rebellious person in the church, that he may be ashamed, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him, warn him, as a brother. But that doesn't mean you partake of his sins. You warn him. It says you may have to part company with him. But you still admonish him as a brother. Because there's a, there's a loving concern about the direction he's going. You can't condone wrongdoing in someone's life. We wouldn't do it in our own life. James chapter 5. James chapter 5. In verse 19. 
James 5.19 says this, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. That's a good verse. If a friend goes bad, we try to turn him around. You know, if Gavin was up here and he was he was going in the right direction, and I went up Gavin and Gavin, you, you can't you gotta stop. You can't go in this direction. You're going away from God. You need to turn around and go this way. That's what the verse is saying. I may have helped him <clears throat> keep away from a multitude of sins. Let him know he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. Who knows? what the end of that would have been. To continue to let him go away from God. We need to help each other. Turn each other around. Keep Try to keep each other on the straight and narrow. If a friend goes bad, we turn him around. Now turn back to 2 Samuel, chapter 12. I just want to finish with David. 2 Samuel, chapter 12. You all know the story of David with Bathsheba. So I won't belabor that point. Second Samuel chapter 12. You know, Nathan, Nathan the prophet uh, is sent to tell David the truth about what's taking place here with David and Bathsheba. And, um, to open David's eyes, God gives him a parable to uh, to tell to tell David. So Nathan, though, is used to give godly counsel, and it's God that brings the conviction in David's life. Now, verse four tells us this: And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. So Nathan uses this parable, and uh, he talks about a traveler. And it's interesting, this traveler comes into David's life. Now, I don't know what you think about it, but I've always believed that the traveler is the flesh. That the flesh came into David's life, it rose up in him, and, and, he, and he wanted, he saw Bathsheba bathing, and he wanted her. Now David had plenty of sheep he could have went to of his own. He had enough wives he could have went to on his own. But his flesh had now taken control of his life. In fact, it says here that the rich man, who is David, now is preparing the sacrifice or the the food for the traveler. It should be the other way around, you would think. But when the flesh takes hold in our life, it becomes the master, if we allow it to. And poor David, not poor David, but David here is under under the the, uh, control of his flesh. And that's the traveler, as far as I'm concerned. And he wants the poor man's lamb, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. So Nathan has been sent to tell him what he's done. What he's already done. This is nine months ago. And David hasn't repented. And verse 1 says, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. And he begins to tell him this parable. And it's interesting that someone outside of the situation has to come and help in this situation to tell David and to open his eyes. There have been plenty of time for David to rethink his actions. But rarely do we turn around without God. 
Rarely do we ever turn from our, our sinful ways until someone comes and tells us that we're going the wrong way. Until someone points us back to God and His holiness in the Bible. So Nathan is sent to pry open David's eyes because the flesh is now David's master. And in verses 5 and 6 it says, And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. This man that took of uh, this poor man's one little sheep, he's going to die for that. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold. I wonder if that's after he's killed. Fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. He had no compassion. David knew what was done was wrong, but he didn't turn around until Nathan came and opened up his eyes. He was blinded by his pride. And none of us are going to turn around until somebody puts God in front of us, the Scriptures in front of us, and opens our eyes. And that's in verse 7. You all know that Scripture. Verse 7 says, And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. Nathan opens David's eyes. It's the conviction of God that comes upon him when he says, Thou art the man. You know, pride can't push away this rebuke. Nathan goes all the way, tells him, You're the one. It's you, David. You're the one that's gone away from God. And the greatest thing about David was as, as much as he, he uh, got himself mired in this sin, he fully repented. He fully repented. And in verse 13, it says, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sins. Thou shalt not die. Thank God the Lord has compassion and love. And David repented and he was forgiven and he is restored. Though I didn't read all the consequences from it. But he is restored. You know, David's the one that said in Psalm 141 verse 5, Let the righteous smite me. It shall be kindness. And let him reprove me. It shall be excellent oil. He took that he took that uh, godly correction from Nathan and it changed his life. It got him back on the right path. Here's the note though. Turn back to chapter 11. David inquired after a married woman. And the Bible says this in chapter 11 verse 3. And David sent and inquired after the woman and one said, Is not this Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Hey, isn't this wrong? Isn't this a married woman? This person knew that, and I bet you many others knew it. But no one said anything to the king. Shame on us if at some point this man got off course and nobody came up alongside of him and helped him. Shame on us. Because he needs... Help just like we need help. And probably more so. The devil gets all over you sometimes. David was the king. Others must have known. Joab knew that David wanted Uriah killed. And he did it. He carried it out. He went along with it. David could have stopped this and there were others around him. All this could have been changed. But it took one person, Nathan, the man of God, that had to go and tell him the truth. Now, if it's good enough for David, it's good enough for us. I'm just saying, I'm not talking about going around looking at everybody and how you're going to 
jump into their life and into their business. If God tells you to pull up alongside, you're walking with God, and God says pull up alongside Andrew and, and, and talk to Andrew or, or alongside Gavin or anybody else. And you sisters ought to be looking at each other. We're to help each other. When we know that somebody's going down the wrong road. Otherwise, it's, it's, uh, it's compromise. God had to send Nathan. Why? Because God loved David. God loved him. And God loves you too. And for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Remember, Revelation 3.19. God doesn't withhold correction because he loves us. In fact, it's just the opposite. He corrects us and chastens us because he loves us. God never holds back because he loves us too much to even allow David to continue on in his sin. So, loving correction is sometimes the greatest expression of love. Helping somebody, turning them around, correcting them, chastening them. Don't compromise. It shows the loving concern for a child or a friend more than love of self or what people think of me. We effectively remove God's barrier for suffering the consequences of sin. The heart is inclined to continue in sin when speedy judgment is removed. If we don't go and talk to our, children, our friends, or if we don't train our children and correct our children, then we're just allowing them to sin. And we've taken down any barrier that God's put there to keep them from falling into more sin. We fail to bring about the peaceable fruits of righteousness that God intended. Holy living is what God likes. That's what He wants. Sometimes a word fitly spoken is just enough. Just saying something, speaking the truth and love to somebody will be enough to turn them around, get them to think about their situation. Then there are times the rod is applied or the sword of the Spirit does draw blood. When we, when we use Scripture, it may hurt somebody. But remember, the wounds of a friend are faithful. You're just being a faithful friend. Didn't say it was easy, but you're being faithful. You're loving that person. But compromising correction could be revealing that it's just the deceitful kisses of the enemy. So, let's love with a godly, Bible-centered love for whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. Amen? Let's pray.